brilliant. So, so thanks everybody for coming to this, the first episode of Fencing by the Book, uh, the show where we take an in-depth look at some of the early Lishnauer sources. Um, I'm Mike Smorridge, your host, and joining me today's look at these glosses are a panel of historical fencing enthusiasts. So we have TQ, Steve Cheney, Michael Chidester, and Johanna Hopfgartner. How, how bad was that, Joey? Oh, it was wonderful, really. I've had worse. <laughs> I'm startled that you got my name, too. Most people can't. Well, I'm I'm gonna just preface this by saying that I I'm not a German speaker. I've never studied German in school, uh, so I'm sure that I'm gonna mangle an awful lot of pronunciations today. Um, Lichtenauer, the better. Is is it Lichtenauer or Lichtenauer? Lichtenauer. Yeah, Lichtenauer. It's sort of a I think. Okay, well, I can barely speak English. <laughs> so, so, so I, I, I think that the a good place to start would be to say that we're all sword fighting enthusiasts um, who who've met each other uh, on the internet, on the the Hema Discord, especially. Um, and our intended audience is people that are that are interested in this stuff and going and looking at sources in a little bit more depth. Um, should we just take a moment to introduce ourselves in a little bit more detail? So um, if we start with Michael. Uh, my name is Michael Chester. I have been doing this for about 19 years now since I was in college. Um, for the past 10 years, I've been running a website called Wicked Hour which hopefully everyone's heard of and has found useful, um, which is a attempt to bring together all the source material that we study in HEMA, although at the moment it's only complete to about the mid to late 16th century. Work is going to keep going on that probably forever. And I primarily fence uh, according to the teachings of Lichtenauer, although I've spent a good deal of time with Fjodor in my, in my past as well. And I only actually speak English, Spanish, and Italian. So my German is very fencing focused, and that's all I really know. Okay, that's brilliant. And um, Steve? My name's Stephen Cheney. Um, I've been doing HEMA since 2015. Before I did that, I did uh, Kendo, which I started in 2008. Um, I started my club, um, Buck's Historical Longsword, in uh, 20, the end of 2016. And I study, um, I study early KDF RDL, um, mostly uh, Sudafan Danzig and Yudlev, but I'm getting into, I'm starting to incorporate some Ringek into that too and doing the whole RDL thing. And I like to do translations also sometimes. I hear you have a book coming out soon. Yeah, um, RDL, Ring of Glue, Longsword, Lev, sorry, I don't know. Um, <laughs> Lev, soon. soon, hopefully. Um, okay, that's brilliant. Uh, Joey? Oh, okay. 
my name is Johanna Hopfgetner. I am from Austria. I've been doing HEMA since 2016, so compared to others, I'm probably a newbie. Um, I like to study all weapons I can and all sources I can. And I have the great um, advantage of being a German native speaker, and I also study German philology, which also helps. Yeah. Um, for the for the ignorant amongst us, what is uh, philology? philology? I'm sorry. So um, it's basically German studies. So I studied to become a German teacher, and one part of it is um, German linguistics and the history of the German language. Okay, brilliant. Uh, T? Uh, hi, so I'm TQ. Uh, I fence here in the UK. Um, uh, I've been fencing since late 2013 or so when I started HEMA. Um, and I mostly study and teach uh, out of Ringek um, and other early KDF sources, but picking Ringek anytime there's a conflict between them. Um, I've done a bunch of traveling and a bunch of teaching, especially on pedagogy and kind of detailed interpretation quirks um, is, I think, what I'm most known for at the minute. Oh, and I did a project to do pictures of all of Ringek called the Illustrated Ringek a couple of years back. So go check that out. Oh, brilliant. Thank you very much. I'll, I'll put in a plug at the end of the show in the show notes. Um, so listen to all of us describe ourselves. Um, we've um, a lot of us tended to, to say that we're doing Lichtenhauer longsword fencing in in contrast to fiore or or other styles and then we we've picked up on individual glosses so um t could you say a, a little bit about how as historical fences we tend to to work from certain sources rather than others i, th I think what i'm trying to dig for here is we've got a, accounts from the middle ages from uh from the early modern period about people doing sword fights and getting into trouble but the the kind of sources that as fencers we're we're hunting for a little bit different from that yeah so what we're what we mostly draw from in hema here are what you could call technical fencing sources so like if you imagine trying to learn about modern boxing from a court account of two guys who got into a bar fight you might find that there's this thing called a punch that someone does or that a guy hit another guy and then he was unconscious, but it won't really tell you much about what you actually want to do when you're trying to box. Um, and this is kind of the same. There's a lot of stories about people getting into fights or uh, court records about people fighting each other and killing each other and whatever. Um, and all of this stuff is useful to contextualize what's going on, um, but it doesn't inherently tell us how to actually do the stuff, how to think about fencing, um, understand what's going on in a fight, make decisions in a fight, which is sort of what defines a fencing system or a martial art or however you want to put it, compared to just knowing a few cool tricks with swords. Um, okay, cool. So, so, so kind of like the, the difference between a, a biography of George Foreman versus Dempsey's instructions on how to do a jab. Yeah, basically. Or uh, the difference between like a book about a physicist and a book about physics. Okay, yeah, that that's a really good uh, example. Um, and going into a little bit more uh, detail, we're narrowing in, in in these chats on a a select few sources. 
Um, Steve, could you pick up on uh, the Lichtenhauer tradition or or KDF, I think you called it before, as well as RDL, and just say a, a little bit about that group of sources? So KDF uh, stands for Kunstdesfechtens, which means art of fencing. Um, and basically, KDF is, is anything that's based off of um, the Zettel by uh, Johannes Lichtenauer, which is um, a poem of rhyming couplets that is made intentionally um, obscure and not understandable to anybody who doesn't know the tradition. Um, so we study the KDF texts themselves are uh, mostly glosses of the of this poem, which is an explanation of what each uh, couplet or series of couplets means. And without them, we wouldn't be able to understand anything about the Zettel. It would just be totally mysterious and belong in like a Tolkien novel or something. Um, so RDL is a uh, specific group of of uh, of these glosses, and the, it stands for Rank Danzig Lu Lev Lu Lev um, Lev Lev. <laughs> Um, or Loy, maybe. Anyway, um, so it's three different, um, I guess, branches of the gloss, which are thought to have come from one common gloss in the beginning that we don't know about and probably will never find. Um, okay, um, I think now would be a good point possibly to also uh, bring in uh, Mike Chidester as well. Yes. Um, so, so I think a couple of key things is we sometimes hear a term of German school versus Italian school uh, used. Is that accurate? Is that inaccurate? So it's never that simple. Um, we in HEMA have a sort of survivor bias problem where there are very few records that are technical fencing sources from the entire 15th century and only uh, two or three from the 14th century. So we have to deal with um, the fact that we don't really know how any most people are fencing in this time period at all. What we have are records of a couple of specific fencing traditions and the two that most people are focused on in the 14th, 15th century will tend to be um, one of them is German and one of them is Italian. So we generalize to, oh, this is clearly what Germans were doing, which is probably not the case. But the the um, there are four fencing treatises by an Italian master named Fiore di Liberi, who uh, wrote them all at the very beginning of the 15th century. And we characterize that as Italian and especially Italian longsword because in Hema we only care about longsword. But that's not really accurate and certainly isn't representative of what any other Italian tradition um, looks like from later periods, you know, um, at the beginning of the 16th century. And so it's probably not what they looked like earlier on. It also doesn't really match up with any iconography or other visualizations of Italians fighting. So it's probably a distinct and unique system. The Lichtenauer, we know, 
um, who is who we characterize as the German school of fencing, did become the German school of fencing maybe 50 to 100 years after Lichtenauer's lifetime when the Marx Bruder Fencing Guild received a monopoly um, over fencing teaching and fencing certification. They brought the Lichtenauer tradition to the masses. So we could maybe make an argument that that's traditional German fencing, but we also have other German treatises that don't look like Lichtenauer and don't describe fencing the way Lichtenauer describes fencing and certainly don't quote Lichtenauer. So there were obviously, we have direct evidence of other contemporary German traditions outside of the Lichtenauer school. So in both cases, we're looking at a very specific, fairly highly developed um, fencing teaching that may or may not be typical of what the average fencer knew or did. Does that answer your question? Yeah, that, that's pretty brilliant. Um, anybody else got anything to add to that? Um, I'll add that um, Michael mentioned that uh, it kind of became the standard um, that the Marx Bruder used and everything, but we also know that over that time, the tradition was going through um, some very uh, significant changes, and the KDF of, say, 1500 may have looked very different from the KDF of uh, 1450 or so. Right, because we're dealing in this time with an actual living tradition. And what we know is that martial arts never stay the same from one generation to the next. So every fencing master has the prerogative to reinvent the art because he's a master. He doesn't need to recreate some other master's work. And that's something that we don't really acknowledge enough in HEMA is that you is that <clears throat> once you're a fencing master, you get to do whatever the hell you want, including reinventing Lichtenauer's teachings for your students and posterity. So, because yeah. they've got sorry. their own sort of authority, they're not having to to draw upon a book for their authority as a person who's good at hitting stuff. Right. Most likely, Ringek didn't think of himself necessarily as doing Lichtenauer or trying to. He probably acknowledged that he learned from Lichtenauer, but what he taught his students was his teachings. And the same for every other fencing master. Um, and we can still, and, and in, from our perspective of hindsight today, we can look at how martial arts that we have, you know, film of and video and writings from the 20th century have changed over the past hundred years. And I imagine it's been that way forever. We can kind of see that happening in real time. Uh, if you look at like Hans Madel, where he says like, previously they did this, but I do it like that. Et yeah, and that's why, that's why I love Hans Madel. He's one of the few Lichtenauer writers who actually comments on and even occasionally like bashes the earlier glosses for teaching things that weren't as good as his teachings. And I wish we had more like that. Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, so Steve, especially when he was introducing himself, talked about RDL, uh, Ringek, Danzig, and Lev. Um, can anybody give a little bit more detail about those sources, um, where we actually find text for them. Um, what are the texts like? Do they have pretty pictures in to help us understand or that kind of stuff? Uh, I can cover that if you'd like, unless someone else wants to take it. Um, the, I can also uh, do a take on that, so go ahead. All right, I'll go first, then you can correct me. So Ringek, Danzig, and Lev. Um, Ringek is the only one that we have sort of outside confirmation of his status as a fencing master beyond his own writings because 
another fencing master in the Lichtenauer tradition named Paulus Kahl gave us a list of 16 masters um, in addition to Lichtenauer, who he called the Gesellschaft Lichtenauers, right? The Lichtenauer Society or Lichtenauer Fellowship or some word that's like that, that means an association of people. And we don't know who any of those guys were beyond the fact that Paulus Kahl thought they were significant Lichtenauer masters. And Ringek is the only one of the RDL or RDLN um, Gloss tradition who appears on that list. Um, and we also know based on his own writings that he was a Scheermeister to um, a certain Duke Albrecht of Bavaria. We don't know which one because there were actually four in the late 14th and 15th centuries, but to one of them most likely. And Scheermeister is an interesting word because there's two different ways you could construe it. It's spelled in the book with one R and one M, but Scheermeister with Meister with two R's is a quartermaster, and Scheermeister with two M's and one R is a fencing master. So he was either claiming that he had a military rank um, in charge of wagons and so on, um, in the Duke's army, or he was claiming that he was the Duke's personal fencing master. And we have no way of knowing which one. The same Paulus Cal has the same, gives himself the same title to a different um, German noble. And we don't know for him either which one's correct. But it was in either case, he certainly had some kind of military fighting profession in addition to his fencing practice. Okay, Don so these, these two. Um individuals are claiming to be part of the the entourage the staff of uh high status noblemen yes like, whether that's uh, a staff members of the high nobility to, yeah either as military officers of some sort or as fencing masters um because shearman is what they used to call fencing before they switched to fechten as a verb um and the title shearmeister would have been pretty out of date at that point, but possibly still used, especially if you like tradition the way nobles often do. Um, cool. but that's a whole different topic. Yeah. So Danzig, sorry. Uh, no, never mind. Carry on. Uh, so Danzig and Lev, we have no outside confirmation of who they were. And in fact, when we say Danzig, what we actually mean is some anonymous guy who's definitely not named Danzig. Uh, because there was a, a period of time in HEMA literature when this anonymous author was referred to as Peter von Danzig, which we now know is not correct. And Peter von Danzig is a different important fencing master who wrote a different treatise and is also a Gesellschaft Lichtenauer member. But this pseudo-Peter von Danzig is completely unknown. All we have are writings by him. And Yudlev, we only know the name because in two copies, of his gloss, it's listed at the very end, which says, here ends the art of the Jewish man named Lev, or here ends the Jewish art of the man named Lev, depending on how you want to slice up the sentence. Um, but we don't even know that, that means he was the author or that he was the one who bought the book because it's the last thing in the book um, or ordered the book. But because these three different glosses have different contents, we can sort of give them a separate identity and say they're not the same text, they're just very, they were just interrelated. And so we have these nicknames for each copy. There's also a fourth one that's attributed in exactly one copy to a dude named Nicolaus, which 
is yet another derivation from the same source. So I've started adding him onto the end of RDL to give RDL n. His, his gloss kind of lies somewhere in between Danzig and Lev in terms of contents, but is an entirely unique teaching that has seven or so copies out there, plus a secret one that I can't talk about that will come out eventually. Um, so ultimately, we'll find there's at least eight. Um, and then of Lev, there's like 13 or 11, and Danzig only has two, and only one complete one. Okay, there's some, some nice spoilers in there. Um, <laughs> any, anybody else got anything to add to that? Um, commenting specifically on illustrations, we know that some of these some of these copies are illustrated. One of the things about uh, manuscript copies is that they get, or manuscripts is that these aren't printed books where every copy is identical. Uh, a manuscript has to be recopied by hand every time somebody wants a new copy. So you get modifications and changes. Um, and also you get things like, I'm going to make a cheaper copy, so I'm going to skip the illustrations that the previous copy had because that takes a whole lot of extra time and not in fact paper. Uh, manuscripts are written on calfskin uh, so you have to kill one cal per few pages, which adds up pretty fast price-wise. Um, so one of the copies of Ringek we have has some illustrations. Um, unfortunately, it's only a partial copy. We know that it was originally illustrated, though, uh, because this definitely isn't the original copy, and it definitely has illustrations. And the other main copy references the illustrations a couple of times, but doesn't have them. Uh, of the copies of Danzig, uh, one of them has, those both have some illustrations, but none of them the same. Uh, I don't believe Lev is illustrated. Uh, Michael will be able to collect me, connect, uh, correct me on that. Uh, nope, none of the copies are illustrated. Yeah, and I assume Nicolaus also isn't illustrated? Correct. So some of these are illustrated, but not all of them. It may or may not be that the original uh, Erdloss that all of these draw from was illustrated, but we can't prove that either way. So the Danzig is interesting because the old copy from the 15th century only has uh, three folia with illustrations, right, of the four guards of, of Lichtenauer presumably sitting in a chair, whereas the later copy from the 16th century has 73 illustrations, I want to say, none of which were, were drawn from the originals. So it was much elaborated by a later um, artist possibly under the guidance of a fencing master, but also somebody who perhaps didn't understand what the original intent of the techniques was. So a huge span of time between the original and the first illustrations of most of it. Except I want to um, just real quick go back to the very basics of this. So when we talk about Ringek, Danzig, and Lev, we're not talking about like one single book. Like each one of those things doesn't line up with one single book. It's a it's a um, a copy of text that's copied in in many different manuscripts, which also many of them include a lot of other stuff as well. Um, and additionally, we don't have the originals for any of them, so we don't have the original Ringek, we don't have the original Danzig, and we don't have the original Lev, and we certainly don't have the original gloss that they all came from, if there is one. Right. So a big, <coughs> excuse me, um, a big piece of Hema reconstruction ends up being trying to piece together those these different texts and turn them into 
a description of the technique that we're practicing that we can actually rely on. And that's partly the translator's job. And then also partly it requires comparing the different fragments together in a lot of cases, especially Ringek, to try and figure out what the original might have said. And that's the really boring academic piece that most people in HEMA don't ever see because we try to turn it into a fancy, easily readable book before we give it to anybody else. Brilliant. Um, any more comments before we move on? No? Okay, I've, I've got a, a sort of question for, for Joey here. Um, in I don't know very much about the, the history of German as a language, it, but in, in English, it's generally, the English language is generally divided into sort of three different stages. So there's there's Old English, which is what Beowulf would have been written in, Middle English, which would have been uh, what people spoke during the Middle Ages, uh, Chaucer and that kind of stuff. And then there's Modern English, which is everything from Shakespeare up to the present day. And within that, there were there were sort of big shifts in in vocabulary and pronunciation, um, and even what letters people used. What kind of language are the the sources that we're talking about in beyond just German? Mm, it's quite similar in German. So the all sources we look at today, so Ringek and Loy and um, Danzig, or sort of Danzig. Um, they were all written somewhere between 1400 and 1600s, and the language would therefore classify as early New High German. So the German language can be divided into Old High German, Middle High German, and, well, let's say Early New High German and New High German. Um, I was hesitating because there are some linguists that don't draw a line between early new high german and new high german they just have one big new high german period from um, 1350 going on until today but it's usually um, divided into the four categor uh, categories so old high german until 1050 middle high german from 1050 to 1350 early new high german from 1350 to 1650 uh, and then New High German starting with 1650. And nowadays, early New High German is usually considered as a, <laughs> a proper period on its own um, because there was just so much going on and so many changes happening that it's, yeah, well, it's, it's, it's hard to define and it's more of a period of transition from Middle High German to New High German. And Language-wise, Middle High German and Modern New High German are quite different to each other, obviously. Um, but the transition didn't just like occur overnight, of course. Um, it slowly changed throughout the centuries into what we now call New High German. And if you look at the phenomena that happened in that time, in the time of early New High German, uh, you can roughly <laughs> try to like estimate or um assume the age of a text just by looking at the language and analyzing how many and which ones of the changes have already taken place okay. a, 
I was just going to say that I think okay. that <laughs> English has uh, has had one sort of big vowel shift where the the way that people pronounce certain letters has changed, um, which is why we we spell colour with U's and this kind of stuff. Uh, yeah. German's gone through more of them, hasn't it? Yeah, we had a lot of shifts. They um, like many of them happened in earlier times, that there, uh, but there were quite some of them who or oh, that happened in the um, early New High German period. And as you look um, at the sources, like starting, I don't know, maybe even starting with the with the um, poor, with the Hausbuch, with the uh, three two seven eight. Um, until like the the older ones, like the Ringeck in Rostock, which was somewhere in the 1570s, um, you can see a lot of changes. So phenomena that happened in the later um, versions of the sources, but not in the earlier ones. Um, I like one example would be uh, the the way of writing Schwert. So German for sword, at least in modern German. So the earlier manuscripts always say Sviert, so with a S sound and not a SH sound. And you can see that in Pseudo von Danzig's um, 1452 manuscript, he also says uh, says Sviert all the time. Um, and so does uh, Judloi. Um, but if you look at Ringeck, he starts calling it Schwert, and Nikolaus, um, the older version, so in the 1553 version, also calls it Schwert, um, and of course the, the Ringeck one in Rostock also calls it Schwert. So that is one example of a shift that happened um, in the early New High German period. Brilliant. Um... Can we tell anything about the, the geographical area that these came from, or do we just know that from, from the context around the books themselves? Um, I am sure that if you... <laughs> um, yeah, I'm sure that you can tell um, a bit of the region the texts were written in, um, but I can't really. I saw I saw one instance where I could definitely tell the area a text was written in. Um, it was in the early version of um, Nikolaus, so in the 1480 version. Um, it's in the verse uh, Willst du Kunst schauen, sich link und recht mithauen? Um, so all, um, all masters like uh, Pseudo von Danzig and Ringeck and um, you'd like, they all say the word um, link for left. And Nikolaus, in his uh, 1480 version, says the uh, or writes the word tank. And I didn't know it. I really didn't. I saw the word tank and I was like, uh, what? Um, but I looked it up. Uh, I looked it up and apparently um, it's, <laughs> it also means left. Um, it's just one way of expressing the word left but it's almost exclusively limited um, to the Eastern Upper German language area, which would mean um, some very specific parts of Bavaria or Austria. Uh, I found it interesting. Okay, cool. So, so that's either 
the scribe writing down what they hear someone narrating or the scribe interpreting as they as they write what somebody else is saying probably so he he was just right or he was probably just writing down in his, uh, in his own regional dialect so um the version is the viennese web version um that would fit perfectly into the um <laughs> eastern upper language area <laughs> Okay, brilliant. Thank you very much for that little insight. Um, I've got uh, two more broad points to bring up um, during this episode. And the first one of which is that there's there's an elephant in the room here when we're talking about R, D, L and N, um, which is that there is another gloss. There's the uh one manuscript of it isn't there ms3227a uh the uh what are you calling it these days michael the the pole house book pole house book i really um, dislike that name yeah Dobringer is better if we're going to use one but could just call it 3227a so 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 this is the 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 explanation of lichtenhauer's fencing that we've all grouped together to hate on um, do we want to just? I don't know what you're that? talking about. I love it. I so it three. If I can say a few words about that, thirty-two twenty-seven A is a fascinating, fascinating book for a lot of reasons. First, it's a it's an unica. It's a unique text that was never recopied, as far as we can tell. And by it, I mean specifically the longsword gloss, because it's a huge compendium of different esoteric and quasi scientific texts. Uh, there's gunpowder recipes, there's magical formulae and incantations, there's different medical texts, there's cooking recipes. It's full of all kinds of cool stuff, but it also has various martial teachings that are, except for one short piece, completely unique. Um, and also were tragically incomplete. Uh, so there, uh, a guy whose name I'm going to butcher and call him Andrage. Um, published a paper last year in which he argued that it was done in three stages and the third stage never actually happened for most of the pages because he goes through and he copies down Lichtenauer's saddle, his uh, his poem, and he leaves a ton of space for a gloss for each one. And then he goes back through and adds little introductory pieces to each section and also extra verses that aren't part of Lichtenauer's typical saddle. And then goes back on for a third pet <coughs> and writes much longer descriptions after the introduction. But what we see in the final version is that some verses are glossed extensively and have pages and pages of description. Some only have the brief introductory piece, and some have no additions at all. Like the Scheidelhau gives the Scheidelhau verse and then has three blank pages after it, double-sided, where he was going to put... I, we I, we could guess a long Scheidelhau gloss, and then never does. Um, so it some of the questions, some of the sections that we have the most questions about in our understanding of Lichtenauer's um, teachings are blank in this book, just empty space that never got filled in. So it's a very interesting text that takes a unique approach and really elucidates some of the sections with a fascinating perspective that's different from RDL but compatible and complementary, and then other sections gives us absolutely nothing. 
So for a long time in HEMA, we've like we've 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 described it as being a completely distinct teaching with nothing in common, um, either because he was a fool or because he was uh, a very sophisticated master who had his own opinions. But now I think that I think we've overstated the difference, the gulf between them, and it is a a very useful supplementary text for the study of RDL. I uh, I want to clarify about um about hating on it I, we we don't we don't hate we don't hate on uh, 3227a we just hate it when people tell us how to do rdl based on what 3227a says okay everybody's a lot more fair and balanced than i am obviously <laughs> well i'm sure that steve and i can bust heads on many points related to to what extent we should be treating the text, the individual treatises as distinct teachings and to what extent we should be combining them into a single teaching. Uh, although that'll probably happen more in future podcasts. Well, I think that um, if you <laughs> if you read 3227A and come away from that um, with the opinion that you should always step offline no matter what you're doing every single time, then, I don't want to discuss <laughs> stuff with you. Uh, I'll add that my my views on Figure Two Seven A were went the other direction, and I've sort of taken RDL and gone back and tried to use it to illuminate Thirty Two Twenty Seven A. So maybe I have other artifacts from going that direction, but I think that having spent a lot of time with Ringek and Dunzig and Lev, and then going back with fresh eyes to Three Two Two Seven A. It made a hell of a lot more sense than the first time I read it, not having that background. So oh, yeah, yes. people who focus on it are probably going down a different path than me. I think that's fair because you can't really do three two seven A alone because it's missing way too much stuff. I, I love that this spiciness has already started. Um, <laughs> with with, with Dobringer, there's a, a bit of a a big question mark about the date because it's got a a super early date compared attributed to it than the rest of the text isn't that right so there's a ish yes um the one of the things in this book and michael already touched on this that the book has uh, the treatise um the manuscript has a lot of stuff copied into it um only some of which is fencing um uh, i've offered to teach classes on the magic at events and nobody has accepted it yet it's really disappointing um but one of the things it has is a table of the dates of easter um, which is often called a calendar but isn't really what we think of as a calendar today so it's a chart by day um uh, by year telling you what date uh, easter falls on in that year um and these are useful things to have if you care about um uh observing religious holidays which is very important um and the first year on that calendar, that Easter table, is 1389, which is a much earlier date than the firm dates. Uh, 1390. 1390, thank you. Um, uh, so it's a much earlier date than the dates we can attribute to the rest of RDL, which tend to start at 1452 for Codex 44.8.8 uh, in Rome. Um, but uh, material like Easter tables get copied and recopied. Um, and we know, you know, we have other examples in texts which aren't related to fencing where tables like this have been copied at dates which are definitely after the first uh, year in the calendar. Um, 
so it's difficult to firmly date it based on that. Uh, uh, I'll add. Sorry, I was going to say I've seen it argued by Jens Kleinel, uh, based on some comments about the watermarking or something else to do with the, the specific script or something like that. That a date around the 1420s seems more plausible, which is much closer to being in line, although still a little bit early compared to the rest. So I just want to add in first that it's not actually an Easter calendar. It's more esoteric than that. It's a list of the number of weeks between, sorry, the number of Sundays between Easter and Pentecost, which varies because of the lunar calendar. Um, so it's something that's very specific that very few people would actually have a use for. And it's thought that it was, it had, it was designed for priests to plan out their sermons. Um, but also... The some of the other content, especially Liber Ignum, which is a fairly famous fireworks and gunpowder text, which is notable for having one of the earliest formulae for gunpowder, was very rare. It existed in 1389, but it was very rare, and it mostly appears in texts from the early 15th century. So it's one of the ways we can say this would have been a typical thing to have in 1420, 1430, and a really, really um, surprising thing to have in 1390. So that looking at some of those texts, we can get a sense of what period the manuscript fits into, independent of having a, a firm date, which people have looked at it. Uh, Eric Burkhart published a paper four or five years ago in which he argued 1389 was probably correct. And uh, Andrej, his paper that I mentioned before, disagrees and goes back into the 15th century. So we may never answer this question. The evidence is tenuous at best. But I think that, that for our purposes, it, putting Lichtenauer that, that much earlier than the rest of the manuscripts in his tradition is a huge assertion that needs a whole lot of justification for why there was 80 years of silence after Lichtenauer's lifetime if we have one treatise and then nothing until 1450, sorry, 60 years. Okay, so so just to build up a little bit of context, the the first time that we sort of see the name Lichtenauer, that's in a Talhofer manuscript, isn't it? Uh, after thirty twenty seven A, yes. Yeah. Fourteen forty eight was it? Yep. And then the the Zethel, the poem that's attributed to Lichtenauer, we first see that in a manuscript that's a little bit earlier, but it's not attributed to him? So the first thing that resembles the Zettel, the Zettel is in 1418, uh, and is attributed to a H. Berenjoy, or Berenjoyce, however you want to pronounce it. Uh, this was found by Jamie Aker a few, uh, some years back. Um, so that's the first dating, and it's definitely some of the same poem, but it's definitely not attributed to Lichtenauer. It only has about a two-thirds of the longsword verse and none of the other weapons. Nice and nice and complicated then, isn't it? All right, so so now that we've muddied the waters a little bit, um, you you joked earlier, Michael, that we're humorists, so all that we care about is longsword. And that's definitely not true for Steve, I know. Um, but... I think we're going to focus on the long I don't think it's true of any of us, but it is the <laughs> yeah. stereotype. Um, what kind of fencing or sword fighting or whatever are the 
the sources that we're looking at talking about. T, I'll let you kick this off. So, well, I'm just going to start by quoting some Zettel. Um, uh, the Zettel is the recital of Lichtenauer's poem. Um, and it says uh, that you, uh, there's a little section in the introduction talking about weapons. And it says, like, uh, wrestle well and glaive spear, sword and knife, handle well, handle manfully. Um, glaive in this context is a lance. Um, so it's basically spear, sword, and dagger, um, along with wrestling, are the kind of core weapons of the Lichtenauer material. Um, and the Lichtenauer stuff talks about them in three specific applications. It talks about the sword used unarmored uh, in both hands on foot, which is what we call longsword. Uh, longsword isn't the name of a weapon. Uh, it's the name of a way of wielding a weapon. Uh, there's a particular play in one of the Danzig horse sections where you take your sword and then you use it short to make a parry and then you use it long to deliver a hit. Um, and you're changing your grip to do all of these things. So longsword is how you hold it when you've got both your hands and it's extended. Um, but it's just called a sword as a weapon. Um, then there's also the spear or lance, uh, which would be used on horseback and on foot, in particular in armor. Um, and there is the uh, knife or dagger used again in armor and on horseback. Um, there's very little evidence, incidentally, for combining the dagger with the longsword. Uh, that's not something we see illustrated very often. Um, it turns up in a couple of the pictures in one of the Danzig, uh, the illustrated Danzig, but not very many. Uh, I think four out of the 40 uh, illustrations have it. I counted once. Um, and yeah, so very few, uh, you have this set of weapons. Then we also have other weapons adjacent to it, um, a sword and buckler, uh, significant wrestling treatises by other figures related to the Lichtenauer tradition and associated with it by Paulus Kahl. Uh, most famously, Ott Yud, uh, another Jew, uh, did a series, uh, a wrestling manual. Any other questions you had about weapons? I forgot the first half of your question. Uh -huh. Let me let me add in there that 327A is the only source that we know of that has a wrestling section attributed to Lichtenauer, and also a dagger section. So and a sword and buckler section. Sword and buckler, although that one is really funny because it just says to wield sword and buckler well, you should, and then stops, and the rest of the page is blank. Um, also, staff is in there as well. So what, what, what a tease! What? Yeah, what, what a tease! So it has, they're fairly short. Uh, the wrestling is, is the longest of the other weapons, and they're all attributing to Lichtenauer, whereas we have no other evidence that Lichtenauer had specific teachings for those. So it's a place where that source <clears throat> maybe gives us the missing piece or maybe just makes some shit up. It's hard to say, really. Okay. So given that we're, we're talking about the 15th century, when we're talking about in armor versus not in armor. The armor that we need to think of in our heads is kind of uh, plate harness, knights in shining armor, that kind of stuff. Not not male with buckets on their head. Is that accurate, fair? Yes. Um, the, the classic form of armor here is something called a Kastenbrust for the early 15th century in Germany. Um, they're a kind of weird kind of armor, and there's not very many surviving ones, but fortunately they're quite famous in HEMA because Jess Finley wears one. Uh, so if you want to see what one looks like, go look at a picture of Jess Finley in armor. Um, 
and they've got this very distinctive boxy shape. They're quite an iconic German uh, form of armor. We see them illustrated a lot in Talhofer um, and related uh, armor designs show up um, in the illustrated armored commentaries in uh, some of the RDL texts, um, but typically later and more developed into what would become Gothic armor. Brilliant. Um, Steve, uh, I'll pick, pick on you for this one. In, in contrast to that kind of armored fencing, uh, this is Blossfesten. What, what does Blossfesten mean? And how do we know anything about how it would have been practiced from sort of like context, things that aren't in the, the sources we're looking at? Um, so the difference, okay, so the difference between Blossfesten and Harnish armored fencing, um, first of all, is, is pretty drastic. Um, the thing about armor is if you hit somebody with a sword and they're wearing armor, it won't really hurt them. You have to aim for specific spots. So, um, I think like, uh, T mentioned earlier, you hold the sword differently. You hold it in short sword, which means you grasp the, um, the blade with your bottom hand and, uh, the handle with your, I guess your strong hand. And then you try to work the point into, uh, you know, the openings in the armor and there's a lot more wrestling and there's other weapons and stuff. And then there's, you pull out your dagger and all that cool stuff. Um, so Blosfechten is, um, obviously without armor. So you can, uh, theoretically hit wherever you want. Although, um, it's not exactly clear, um, how they, well, at least in the time of um, of the the early uh, RDL sources, like if we're talking like 1450, we don't really know how exactly they um, they they I guess put their um, put their skills to the test. Later on in the 16th century, we know about Fecula stuff, which is um, there's there's several different rule sets for that. Um, the the main one that I'm familiar with uh, in in Germany was uh, aiming for the head and like no stabs allowed. Um, does but um, yeah, you're not you're not limited to um, to stabbing into the gaps in the armor, I suppose. So we divide the body into the four openings: upper left, upper right, lower left, lower right, and um, that's just for division purpose but you can really aim wherever you want. Okay, but so this this system would have been used for people playing for fun uh, as well as just going around murdering people or well, we we are not we don't really know. Um as as far as I understand um I think it's a it's an easy misconception to make that it's purely like a killing art. We say RDL means real deadly longsword as like a uh, as a joke against uh, people who automatically assume that because it's you know old and it's talking about swords, it must automatically be talking about like fighting on the street, two people with sharps and no armor on, and just like going at it to the death. Um, we don't really have much in the way of accounts 
of of uh, deadly duels. Um, and we also, I, I'm not aware of uh, unarmored fictula rules that we have from most of the 15th century. So I think it's it's pretty fair to say because we do have a lot of uh, records of um, armored duels and like legal, you know, judicial duels, which were always done with armor, um, which I'm sure Michael can um, elaborate on. But we don't really have anything for um, duels to the death with sharps. So I think it's fair to say that the uh, the the, the longsword section was probably not necessarily always for a duel to the sharp, but but it, it's it's a tool set. So if if you needed to use it for self defense or something like that, if if it came up, then you might be able to. But uh, yeah, does that answer the question? Yeah, I think I think so. Does anybody have anything to add to that? I mean, uh, just kind of uh, kicking in one little point. We do so. We do know that like uh, the Holy Roman Empire was quite a interesting political situation. You get a lot of kind of low scale warfare, feuding, and so forth. But also that a lot of this has a kind of today we'd look at it as being shockingly violent. Standard actions and feuds are things like okay, your peasants are over here, so we're going to go burn down their uh, burn down their uh, barns and then we're going to kidnap some merchants uh, but actually killing people in feuds was really frowned on um, and very notable when it happened uh Hilates Mora's book about feuding in the history of uh in early modern germany is really relevant to some of this discussion um so just because people are doing violence to each other with potentially sharp swords doesn't mean they're actually killing each other necessarily a lot of it might be just threatening or injuring um the one account I personally know of, of an unarmored duel with longswords, uh, with sharp swords, the city council mandated that the two fencers had the points broken off their swords, they couldn't stab. And when one of them hit the other in the hand, he was expelled from the city for doing a dishonest strike. Uh, the guy who got hit was also expelled for losing the duel and not being a real fencing master as a result. So it was really lose all round. Um, oh, okay, the, so, so the... There were there was a context to all of this that it was taking place in a world where there are repercussions if you behave badly. Yeah, yeah, like a society where people are just killing each other on the street all the time stops being a society very fast. So the, it's interesting. The, on the one hand, we don't have any evidence of this sort of sharp dueling culture. But on the other hand, there's mounting evidence. So we're, we're sort of gathering lots of anecdotes over time um of situations that germans found to get into sharp sword fights for no real reason like the duel that t mentioned of two fencing masters who demanded to have a duel and they both got thrown out of town because the town was just sick of them uh jess finley was recently on a podcast and she mentioned a dance book she's been reading of historical italian dance from the 15th century and this guy mentions in his notes that he was at a party where some Germans just started get, started doing sharp sword fighting just to, I don't know, show off, have a good time. And one of them died. Um, <laughs> and there's various stories that are sort of just surfacing in random places of Germans messing around with sharp swords for not for like serious 
formal dual situations, but just that seems like it was almost part of the the culture that they really liked swords and wanted to get into sword fights and found reasons to, whether it was dangerous or not. There's an Italian dueling text <coughs> in the 1470s in which the uh, legal expert who wrote the book is talking about how, what a terrible idea unarmored dueling is. And he has a whole chapter on various times people have tried to fight, fight duels without armor and how they were all rejected because it's a bad idea. And two of those are about Germans who came down from Germany hoping to fight a sharp a duel in Italy with sharp swords and daggers with no armor. And one of them, he says that they said it would be fine because they would put on the semblance of ravening dragons and, and defend themselves and in, <coughs> were disallowed. So there's just, and maybe it's a cultural stereotype and people just thought of Germans this way and like to talk about how Germans were crazy and liked sharps. But also there seems to be some kernel of historical fact around it that these random sharp sword fights don't happen in other countries the way they seemed to in Germany. So I don't know. I think that we're, what we're finding is not the answer we wanted, which was that there was this sort of culture of martial arts violence, but also there was a different sillier culture of people getting into situations with sharp swords. And I think we might actually reach a conclusion that that was one of the reasons why people trained the swords in the first place, with given more time and more research. <clears throat> T, you had something to add? I was just going to mention there's definitely some stuff about like English teenagers basically trying to chop each other up with swords and bucklers. Uh, <laughs> Um, that's true at various points so <laughs> it's not like the germans had a monopoly on being stupid with sharp swords there's also various stories about students in different countries those students yep uh students are stupid everywhere who would have thought it yeah <laughs> um on that bombshell um I, I think we'll wrap up this episode and uh take a short break and record uh a little section in a moment about the the four words and the preface to the Zettel. Uh, thank you very much for joining me. That was Johanna Hopfgardner, Michael Chidester, Steve Cheney, and TQ. And I'm your host, Mike Smoridge. Cheers. Mm -hmm.